Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canada's Great War, where I look at Canada during the First World War. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. Canadian History X, which releases every Wednesday and Saturday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. I do all these podcasts full time. The writing, the research, everything. So every doll you give helps keep it all going. And I'll make sure I thank you on the air and throughout my social media. On that note, I would like to say thank you to Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, and Steve Bacon, who all became patrons. And also thank you to Douglas Campbell, who donated to the podcast. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. We're going to shift things now from Canadian troops to Newfoundland troops with our battles of the First World War for Canada. While it is true that Newfoundland did not join Canada until 1949, I am including the battles that Newfoundland took part in because of their role in the future of Canada and the island of Newfoundland. Today we're looking at the Battle of Albert, also known as the Battle of Beaumont Hamel, which ran from July 1st to 13th, 1916, and served as the first major European engagement for the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, which had arrived in France in March. Throughout this episode, I will be referring to it as the Battle of Albert, and while the battle did run from July 1st to 13th, I'm focusing on July 1st, because that is when the Newfoundland Regiment took part. Since arriving in France from Egypt, the Newfoundland troops had spent the previous month in construction of support and communication trenches, roads, and railways. There were brief periods of time at the front lines, and Private G.R. Curnew was the first soldier from the regiment to die in France when he was killed by rifle fire on April 24th. With the assault being planned, the Newfoundland troops were trained heavily in order to get them ready for the assault. By the end of June, the Newfoundland troops began to conduct small raids to assess the defenses of the Germans and their state of preparedness. The first raid was conducted on the night of June 26th into the early morning hours of June 27th, when Captain Bert Butler led 60 men towards the Germans after three weeks of preparation. At 11.30pm, the men left their lines and journeyed through no man's land towards Y Ravine, a heavily fortified part of the German trench. The troops encountered German barbed wire and fired two Bangalore torpedoes into the wire to destroy it, but this failed. The Germans, now seeing that there was a raid coming, fired flares into the air to illuminate the area and began to fire at the troops. Captain Butler then ordered his men to return back to their own trench, having lost two men in the first raid. The next night, Captain Butler commanded a second raid. The men set off in heavy rain through no man's land and reached a gap in the wire created thanks to heavy shelling earlier. As the Newfoundlanders reached the gap, the Germans set up a flare to illuminate the area once again. The Newfoundlanders soon saw that they were only 20 yards from a trench full of Germans who quickly opened fire. The Newfoundlanders began to quickly fire back and throw grenades, but they would suffer heavy casualties. Four men made it to the German trench. One soldier, Private Frederick O'Neill, reached the German trench and emerged back out with a German helmet in one hand and his rifle in the other. Just then he saw a grenade thrown into the air towards about 17 of his fellow soldiers. He shouted, Look out boys, I'll top it or go under. He dropped the helmet, ran and grabbed the grenade and threw it into the German trench. It exploded just as it left his hand, sending him 15 yards in the air. 
Captain Butler and the other troops were able to make it back to their own lines with O'Neill, who they thought was dead. But when he came to, he asked if anyone was hurt. In all, the raid lasted 25 minutes. Four men were killed, three were taken prisoner, and 21 were wounded with two more dying later from their wounds. The information the raids brought back, though, would show that the German trenches were held in great strength and that the German wire was thick and still intact. Other raids by other divisions would show the same result, but the commanders in charge ignored this intelligence. Originally, the attack was supposed to occur in the last days of June, but it was moved to July 1st. It was decided to extend the five days of bombardment to seven days. And while this may seem like a good idea at the time, it actually meant there was more of a limited number of shells for the actual assault. The additional shelling did result in heavy casualties and damage to wiring and trenches on the German side, though. The deep dugouts were relatively untouched, and this still allowed for supply lines to come to the front for the Germans. On the morning of July 1st, the British began a one-hour bombardment of the Germans at 6.25 a.m., and at 7.20 a.m., an underground mine was detonated 900 meters from the Newfoundlanders, creating a crater that was 40 meters wide and 18 meters deep. The force of the 40,000 pounds of explosives sent debris high into the air. Then, minutes later, the bombardment of the Germans ceased. All this allowed the Germans to realize that an attack was coming, and they began to prepare. The Germans then began to bombard the British lines in no man's land. The British sent in the 29th Division of their troops, who were met with a hail of machine gun fire. The attack was a terrible failure, with massive casualties as the British troops were gunned down by the Germans. A second wave of the British occurred, but again this was a terrible failure, and the British troops were once again gunned down. Things were made even worse at the brigade headquarters, where they saw a white flare on the division's right. This was the signal to indicate the capture of the first objective. The problem was that the Germans used the same signal to indicate that their own artillery was falling short. Major General Delisle believed it had been a successful assault as a result, and he ordered the 88th Brigade to commit additional troops to capture German front lines on the right. The order was given to send in the 1st Newfoundland Regiment as soon as possible. On July 30th, the night before the attack, two men had been sent out into the open in order to cut through the barbed wire to prepare for the attack. A letter sent to the Vancouver Daily World would state, quote, They went out there in the open, lying flat in the rain of fire, snip, snip, snip at the wire for over an hour. Pretty good, that, eh? Better to think of now than it was to sit and watch, although every one of us felt a pride in those two men. They did their work and got back again, and it was due to their fine efficiency that we were able to get a good start early on. End quote. The attack was planned for 10 a.m., and the first Essex would support Newfoundland in the attack. But then, instructions arrived as related to the war diary of the regiment. Quote, 8.45 a.m. Received orders on the telephone to move forward in conjunction with the 1st Essex Regiment and occupy the enemy's first trench, our objective being from point 89 to just north of point 60, and work towards the station road clearing the enemy trenches and move as soon as possible. Ask Brigade if enemy's first trench had been taken and received reply to the effect that the situation was not cleared up. Ask Brigade if we were to move off the attack independently of the Essex Regiment and received reply in the affirmative. End quote. At 9.15am, the Newfoundlanders began their assault without artillery or support. The Newfoundlanders went over the top at their position at St. John's Road, and the Germans, because of their position, could easily see the enemy leaving the trenches against the skyline. This meant the Newfoundlanders were completely exposed to machine gun fire. Four companies of Newfoundlanders were marching directly into a hail of bullets, and many of the regiment never even made it past their own front line. 
Dead and wounded soldiers from the previous assaults were blocking the gaps in the wire as well, slowing the advance and allowing the Germans to gun them down. Private Anthony Stacy would write in his memoirs years later, quote, The wire had been cut in our front line and bridges laid across the trench the night before. This was a death trap for our boys as the enemy just set their sights of their machine guns on the gaps in the barbed wire and fired, end quote. A tree sat in no man's land that had survived the war so far. It earned the name Danger Tree, and it was as far as the Newfoundlanders reached on that day. Within 30 minutes of the Newfoundlanders beginning their attack, the attack was over. The Windsor Star would report, quote, The Newfoundlander battalion was pushed up in what may be called the third wave of the attack on probably the most formidable section of the whole German front through almost overwhelming artillery fire and across ground swept by machine gun from hidden positions. The men behaved with completely noble steadiness and courage. End quote. For those who were wounded in no man's land, the battle was not over. The soldiers in the craters and holes all wore triangle tin reflectors on their bodies that allowed the attack to be monitored from afar. The problem was that these reflectors made perfect targets for German snipers. Those unable to make it back after the battle had to lay all day in a crater until they could crawl back in the dark. As soon as night came, the Germans began to illuminate the area with flares, so many of the wounded, unable to move, had to stay where they were, dealing with pain, blood loss, and thirst. Some, delirious from their pain, wandered into German trenches, where they met a quick fate. One Newfoundland soldier stayed in no man's land for four days before finally making it back to his trench. Another, Private James McGrath, lay on the battlefield for 17 hours before making his way back to safety. He would later say, quote, the Germans actually mowed us down like sheep. I managed to get to their barbed wire, where I got the first shot, then went to jump into their trench when I got the second in the leg. I lay in no man's land for 15 hours, then crawled a distance of a mile and a quarter. They fired on me again, this time fetching me in the left leg, and so I waited for another hour and moved again, only to have the use of my left arm now. As I was doing splendidly nearing our own trench, they again fetched me, this time around the hip as I crawled on. I managed to get to our own line, which I saw was evacuated as our artillery was playing heavily on their trenches. They retaliated and kept me in a hole for another hour. I was then rescued by Captain Windler, who took me on his back to the dressing station, a distance of two miles. Well, thank God my wounds were all flesh wounds, and it won't take me long to heal up. End quote. On July 1st, 721 Newfoundlanders went over the top in the battle, and by the next day, only 68 men were available for roll call. Every officer who went over the top became a casualty with 14 dead and 12 wounded. No other regiment suffered more on that day than the Newfoundlanders. In all, the casualty rate of the Newfoundlanders was put at 85%. Included in the dead were 14 sets of brothers, including four members of the Airy family of St. John's. More on them later. The commander of the 29th British Division would say of the Newfoundland Regiment, quote, It was a magnificent display of trained and disciplined valor, and its assault only failed of success because dead men can advance no further. End quote. Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig would state, quote, Newfoundland may well feel proud of her sons, for their heroism and devotion to duty they displayed on July 1st has never been surpassed. Please convey my deepest sympathies and that of the whole of our arms in France and the loss of the brave officers and men who have fallen for the Empire and our admiration of their heroic conduct. Their effort contributed to our own success and their example will live. End quote. Private Arthur Osmond would write about the day. Quote, 
On July 1st was more than I could stand. Bullets flying everywhere. Within a couple hundred yards from the German lines, I got a bullet through my right lung and I thought I was up. I was a bomber at the time with 20 mils bombs on me. I was down with bullets flying all around me. It was a hard sight. Anyway, I kept my head and the first thing that I did was to get clear of the bombs which I rolled from my neck. By that time, I was bleeding a lot. Most of the blood came out of my mouth on account of me breathing. I knew if I stayed there, I would die. So I started to get back and hauling myself along with one arm, for my right arm could not move, and bullets sticking in the ground around me everywhere. End quote. Osmond would spend 12 days on the serious list in the hospital, but he would return to the front lines in 1917 and would be taken prisoner on April 14, 1917. Private Anthony Stacy would state, quote, The enemy just set the sights of the machine guns on the gaps in the barbed wire and fired. I could see no moving, but heaps of khaki slumped on the ground. End quote. On August 9, 1916, a group of 500 soldiers were sent over to Europe in order to replace the many who lost their lives in July. Another 500 men from Newfoundland would soon be sent forward as well. The Calgary Herald would report, quote, News has been received here of the arrival in England of another contingent of 500 soldiers from the Newfoundland Regiment. This draft was sent forward to reinforce the Newfoundland unit, which was almost annihilated on the opening day of the big drive. End quote. In the 1920s, the Newfoundland government would buy the ground over which the regiment fought and a memorial park would be established there. At the site, 5,000 trees native to Newfoundland were planted there when the project was completed in 1925. The site encompasses 30 hectares and is the largest of the five Newfoundland memorial sites in France and Belgium. The site features a bronze caribou designed by sculptor Basil Gatto, who was inspired, partly, by the iconic Newfoundland photo, the monarch of the top sails. The sculpture weighs 1,700 pounds, and at this site, 820 names are inscribed on three bronze tablets at the base of the caribou monument to honour those who died in France, but have no known grave. At the site is the danger tree, which emerged as an important symbol of the scope of devastation caused. A replica of the original tree now stands in its place. And the original tree was a plum tree. And the entire memorial site was unveiled by Field Marshal Douglas Haig on June 7, 1925. And each year, the site receives approximately 230,000 visitors, more than the population of St. John's, Newfoundland. Today, July 1st is not just Canada Day in Newfoundland, but also a day of remembrance of the battle. It was on this day back in 1916 that the Battle of the Somme began. The first clash of that bloodbath took place here in Beaumont Hamel in northern France. Of all the Allied regiments that fought there, none suffered more than the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, some 90% dead or injured in just 30 awful minutes. As Doug Leto reports, it was a disaster that devastated Newfoundland then and still stirs strong feelings 75 years later. They are old men now, but men who still have memories of that terrible summer of 1916. Albert Rowe was 17 when he left for the front. I went away. The nurses, you know, against my parents, they wouldn't want me to go. Not especially. The Newfoundlanders had no idea what they would face that morning as they prepared to take a piece of French ground from the Germans at Beaumont Hamel. As soon as you were up. They were right over the sights, they had no trouble when it popped up. Of the 778 Newfoundlanders who went into battle on July 1st, only 68 answered roll call the next morning. Ralph Shears was about to travel to Europe when names of the dead and wounded started pouring into headquarters of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment in St. John's. They were coming in all night long. 
So we, we know what we were facing when we left. What kind of feeling did that leave you with? Not a very good one. There are only a few of the original soldiers left now, men like Duke Manuel. His daughter Patricia Verge says July the 1st will always hold special meaning. I think there's a sense of pride that the regiment was basically from Newfoundland. I also think that there's a sadness that so many people did not come back. In St. John's today, Colonel-in-Chief of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, Princess Anne, placed a wreath at the war memorial. The regiment reenacted part of the battle that immortalized its members. Today, the enemy was firing blanks, a world of difference from the hail of steel the regiment faced 75 years ago. Doug Leto, CBC News, St. John's. For my soldier profile, I'm actually going to look at four soldiers from that battle. Captain Eric Airy, Captain Bernard Airy, 2nd Lieutenant Gerald Airy, and 2nd Lieutenant Wilfred Airy were four cousins from St. John's who decided to join the fight overseas and enlist in the First World War. Their grandfather had established the firm of Airy & Sons, which their fathers worked at, and this firm helped to boost the economy of Newfoundland. Eric and Bernard were brothers, while Wilfred was the son of John Airy, who was a member of the Legislative Assembly of Newfoundland until his death in 1914. Their grandfather was Charles Airy, who served in the Newfoundland Assembly from 1873 to 1878, and then again from 1879 to 1889, the year he died. All four men came from St. John's, where their grandfather and fathers all lived. And when the war broke out, Bernard was in England at Cambridge, and immediately joined up and was part of the Norfolk Regiment initially. In Canada, Eric, Wilfred, and Gerald were all working in the family business when the Newfoundland Regiment was formed. The three young men all went overseas to complete their training and Gerald was quickly promoted to second lieutenant. On July 1st, all four would go over the top of the trench to charge at the Germans in the battle, and all four would die on that day. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the Battle of Albert. If you did, please leave a rating and review. Next week, we're looking at the life in internment camps in Canada. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Brianna Fultz, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, Wikipedia, Veterans Affairs, Canadian Encyclopedia, Heritage Newfoundland, Windsor Star, Vancouver Daily World, Montreal Gazette, and the Calgary Herald. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.